times they are a-changing Welcome to today's episode of the Pipeline ACC Podcast. I am Dan Siegel from ACC Content. I am joined, as always, by Jason Gibbs. Jason, how are we doing? Dan, doing lovely. Just basking in the glow of our absolutely freezing cold take. I think it was less than a week ago where we said we predicted the future in five years, and we thought maybe, maybe Mike Krzyzewski would still be coaching Duke. It wasn't even the first time that we did that. So I don't know <laughs> if you want to rewind maybe two months back, but remember we had our, our guy Anthony Pagnata on to talk about UNC and their future with Roy Williams. And we kept asking him questions about, you know, the what we want to do, what UNC needs to do to sustain their success under Roy Williams for the next two to three years. And then like two <laughs> weeks later, he retires. Well, yeah, I mean, the same thing happened here. We talked about we're, okay, and We're the anti-Nostradamus, man. It's crazy. But Takes that can only be described as Hoth-esque. <laughs> I mean, I will give you one thing, though. You, The first person you named as a replacement to Coach K was John Shire. Yes. I, I will take minimal credit because you know me. I enjoy – I much rather make fun of myself than – and take a bunch of credit. Um, I do think, I mean, when we can get into this, you know, in this episode, Coach K had a press conference today, said that it didn't really have anything to do with the changing game because people had speculated that it was a lot of the NIL stuff. Of course, he's going to say that. I mean, we don't, we probably don't know the full truth. If it, if it did, if it did have a fact, if it was a factor at least. He's not going to come out and say, well, I, I didn't want kids getting paid or whatever, because obviously it makes him look like a jerk. But it is kind of, you know, eyebrow raising that Roy Williams goes and then Mike Krzyzewski goes. And these were guys that were kind of institutions. So we're quickly changing the face of the ACC. And I think the interesting trend here is the fact that they both went within their program. Now you're like a Duke and a UNC. Everybody is going to have, I've said this in the past, everybody is going to have your job on their radar in some way when there's an opening because you're just a blue blood program. There's a handful of blue blood programs in the entire country. And I think Duke and UNC might even be atop that. And that's what's going to happen. But they look from within their program to kind of just retain the stability. And we have some other greats, some other long-time, long-tenured coaches, legends in the ACC, not as much as Krzyzewski and Roy, but, you know, there's Jim Beheim, there's Leonard Hamilton, Jim Laranega. You have to assume that they'll be gone relatively soon. They'll move on to the retirement stage of their life. And maybe it's a trend, maybe – Long-time assistance being promoted is the trend, at least in the ACC, for when long-tenured coaches retire. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to look at a program, a non-Blue Blood program in that situation. 
because as you said, Carolina, Duke, those are institutions. They've been around for, you know, 40 years. Well, UNC probably more now. I mean, Krzyzewski's coached 40, I think 40 years at Duke, something around there. But a program like Florida State that's not as established historically, would they look within? I don't know. I mean, you can see it maybe translating more so with UNC, with the Duke. Uh, but it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, do they promote within? But maybe it's a reason, even more of a reason to promote from within because you don't have as many options from outside. That's something to keep in mind. Yeah, it's true. And, and you know, one thing to just put a little note by, both Hubert Davis for UNC and John Shire for Duke were given the rubber stamp of approval by, by the coaches on the way out. So it's not like either coach was kind of uh, pushed out the door and, you know, slammed the door in their face, but it's just interesting. They both kind of, that was, that was their guy. And that's who ended up getting, you know, the, obviously the ADs listened and that's the, those are the coach. Well, Hubert Davis this year and John Shire coaching waiting. So. I would say with a Hamilton or a Bayheim type situation, they've been there for much longer than like a Laranega. Laranega has just kind of been coaching for a while, but not forever at Miami. So when it comes to Hamilton and Bayheim, I could definitely see them promoting some sort of assistant or somebody that's been in the program at a slightly lower rank for a lot of years. For Laranega, well, I'm like pretty confident that Miami's just going to hire somebody else. Right. Yeah. I agree. I agree with your Miami take. Um, with Bayheim, I just hope he promotes another Bayheim. Oh God! I told you we're 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 getting close to a full team of Bayheims, and I, I I can't have that dream die on us. I don't know, man. I I love him. I love the success that he brings, but. How about this? Whoever they hire, it's in their contract that they change their last name to Bayhai. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, that's like that trend on Syracuse Twitter. They just when when March Madness rolled around and Buddy Bayheim was just super hot. There's everybody's name was was Bayheim. Like, oh really? I, I I somehow missed that one. Man, that's great. Yeah, like um, like Quincy Gary, not Quincy Gary anymore. It's Quincy Bayheim. It's not Kadari Richmond, yeah. it's Kadari Bay. Like, <laughs> nice. Well, anyway, as far as Coach K goes, I mean, we, we could kind of analyze Duke for a while. We could probably spend an entire episode analyzing the transition, but I just want to spend a couple minutes on it. Like, it's just, it's really crazy. These kind of things don't really hit in your mind right away. They kind of, you know, they, they take place, they over time. And I'm glad that coach K now has an entire year for me to kind of wrap my head around it. Whereas, you know, it was much more all of a sudden with Roy Williams. Now who did it better? That's another conversation, whether you want to retire like Roy, whether you want to retire like coach K, but it just, I mean, does Duke like, do they completely fall off? Are they, 
is this Duke UNC rivalry now not the same? Like there's, there's just so many questions that this brings to the table. Yeah. So as far as the rivalry goes, that's, that's set in stone. Uh, I don't think that changes anything. Uh, if both teams kind of um, completely, if they both fall off and, you know, we're looking at when they get together, it's a couple of eight and 14 teams. Yeah. It's probably not going to be ESPN's prime game. Okay. I'll give you that. But as far as if they're both top 20 teams, then the rivalry remain. The one thing I find interesting is, you know, I, I heard from a, a few Duke accounts. Oh, John Shire's one of the best recruiters in the country. He's a great X's and O's guy. Is he? Or is he, you know, using that parachute, that safety parachute of Coach K? Now, I'm not saying he's not. But what I'm saying is, is you don't know at all because when he might go and recruit some guys and, and you know, maybe he like a Zion Williamson type person, you know, type player. But when Coach K gets on the phone and he has Kyrie Irving talk to the recruit, he has LeBron James talk to the recruit because LeBron, he and LeBron have bonded over the U.S. Olympic team. He's the U.S. Olympic team coach. That is a lot more weight than just, John Shire, former Duke player. So it will be interesting. I, and I know, of course, your fan bases, you want to believe the best. UNC fans want to believe Hubert Davis is going to do great. Uh, Duke fans want to believe John Shire. And then Syracuse want to believe whoever replaces Bayheim is going to do great. But those type of statements, I think, remain to be seen. And that'll be, you know, I think that's reflected in, in our uh, coaches' rankings tonight. Yeah, that's what we're going to do tonight. I figured that that kind of lends well in with this conversation. So I think it would be a good idea to kind of just give our one through 15, or we'll kind of go backwards. We'll give our 15 through one of the best coaches in ACC basketball. And the one kind of twist we'll do is we will not include Coach K. We will instead include Shire, the replacement of Coach K. So besides that, every current coach – I mean, a lot of these, the like the criteria I used are kind of what we alluded to in the beginning of this award-winning podcast. You know, we got past success, obviously. That's number one. Like, if the coach has been there for a long time, you judge them based on how well they've done. Regular season wins, ACC titles, how well they did in March, and, and also accolades like coaches of the year awards, whether it's on the conference or national level. But then there's other things because not every program is the same. How good of a job is your program? You know, there's uncontrollable things. So, you know, if, if you're Shire and you're going to a Duke-like program, you're going to have all the resources to recruit, maybe not the level of Coach K, but still recruit very well. But if you're Shire going to like a, a Boston college or of Virginia tech, it's going to be much more difficult to do the same thing. And then there's also where the program was when you started. Did you take over a great program? Did you take over a program, the dumpster fire and how well did you do? How, what's your resume? How well have you done at your past, your mid-major schools or your past power conference schools? So, or you could be like a Shire 
or a Hubert Davis, where you don't even really have much of a resume in terms of being a head coach. You're just an assistant coach. So I think that's just a great conversation. Talk about our coaching rankings. Jason, I know I've talked for a while, so I'm going to let you give yours first. But let's be suspenseful. Give me 15 through one, your coach's rankings. You want me to read them off, right? Just 15 through one? Yeah. Okay. So 15, I have Jeff Capel, Pittsburgh head coach. Uh, for 14, I have Earl Grant, Boston College head coach. 13, Jim Laranega, Miami. 12, Brad Brownell for uh, Clemson. 11, Double K, Special K, Kevin Keats. 10 and 9, I, I you can – Inner switch them, uh, and I have Shire at 10 and Hubert Davis at 9. 8, I got Steve Forbes for Wake, your boy. 7, Mike Bray, Notre Dame. 6, Josh Pastner for Georgia Tech. 5, Chris Mack for Louisville. 4, Mike Young, Virginia Tech. Uh, 3, Leonard Hamilton, Florida State. 2, Jim Beheim, Syracuse, and one, Mr. Tony Bennett, University of Virginia. All right. So I, I'm going to be honest. I did not look at your list really much before I made mine because I wanted them to be independent of each other. But after comparing them, they turned out to be pretty similar. So I'll read mine. Uh, 15, we got Earl Grant. 14, Jeff Capel. 13, Kevin Keats. 12, Jim Laranega. 11, Steve Forbes, 10, Brad Brunell, 9, John Shire, 8, Josh Pastor, 7, Mike Bray, 6, Hubert Davis, 5, Mike Young, 4, Chris Mack, 3, Jim Beheim, 2, Leonard Hamilton, and 1, Tony Bennett. So as far as our discussion goes, and I'm kind of curious about yours, I'm sure you're curious about some of my decisions, but I say we start from the bottom and work our way up. Um, so first off, I mean, very minor conversation, but 14 and 15, we had Earl Grant and Jeff Capel switch. So you think, according to your list, that Earl Grant will immediately come in and you're more confident that he will be better than Jeff Capel. I mean, have you just basically given up on Capel or do you have like a little bit of confidence in Earl Grant? Like what's your thought process there? Well, a little bit of both. Uh, I th you know, we've alluded to it before. Uh, I think Jeff Capel's kind of steering the Pittsburgh program over the cliff. And uh, they've had, you know, good guys. They've, they've left. They've missed out on recruits. Their record hasn't improved. And if you zoom out and you look at Jeff Capel as a whole, just as a head coach, because he was fine at Duke, he basically had, if you take away the two years he had Blake Griffin at Oklahoma, he does not have a good record, and I just can't see it improving, especially after the kind of disappointing offseason that Pittsburgh had. And, listen, I don't expect Earl Grant to come in and compete for AC's championship or national title or anything like that. But, you know, we talked about it. You've mentioned it. Boston College needed that fresh start, and I think they got it. You know, they they have a, a couple of uh, transfers and, and, you know, we we interviewed um, Brevin Galloway, Brevin Galloway. Exactly. 
And that there's a little bit of excitement in the program. I don't think you can say that with Pittsburgh. I think there's kind of anti-excitement, dread, ready for a fresh start. So, I, and originally I said Capel will be back at Duke. I don't know if that'll be true now with Shire taking the helm. So we'll have to see. But yeah, that's why I had those in that order. So I'm going to preface my my reasoning by first saying that I am confident, or not confident, but I definitely think there's a chance that Earl Grant could bring Boston College out of the dumpster fire they're currently in. But the reason I had Jeff Capel over him is because I just, I think Jeff Capel just came into a terrible situation, and there's a slight reasoning to give him the benefit of the doubt and say, if you give him a couple more years, that maybe this time he will bring Pittsburgh to um, a, a tournament or, you know, a, a relevant ACC team because really what, I mean, he, he just came in and I mean, there, he, it was, I, I would say it was even worse than it was that where he is now. Like the reason the, the, year before Jeff Capel came to Pittsburgh, they did not win a single game in the ACC. I mean, at least they're, so there's like mild improvement, but I mean, maybe <laughs> hey, at least we weren't over. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I think to your point, it's just that I, I kind of feel like he's back at square one, you know, champagne left. We had some transfers, et cetera. He, he didn't get Reed, you know, the re recruit, Efton Reed or whatever. Um, I can't imagine this this team this year being competitive. There's going to be a severe talent gap in almost every team they play in the ACC. So what do you, what do, you do? You know, he's been there since 2018. What do you do? Give him four more years, three more years? I mean, how can he possibly turn it around in a year or two? I don't know. That's it's going to be a mystery. That's a good question. That's kind of what I wrote about in my article. But, you know, let's move on a little bit. I had Kevin Keats at 13. You had him at 11. So you're a little bit higher on Kevin Keats. Tell me why. I mean, you had him above Brad Brownell and you had him above Jim Laranega. I had him below both of those guys. So let's kind of talk about those three coaches and tell me why you had Keats above them, whereas I had them below them. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I will say this. Let me, let me preface all, all of my uh, all of my rankings with, this was actually pretty, pretty difficult for me because there was a, when you got down to kind of that level, I felt like you were splitting hairs a little bit. I, I probably feel the same confidence in maybe all three of those guys. Um, I will say Larry Nega, so I know he's had kind of Miami had a, a rash of injuries, so it's hard to pin that totally on him. I do feel like Miami is competitive, especially when they're healthy, but, and they've made some, you know, I think they've made some, uh, noise in the tournament over the last few years. Maybe I should have bumped them up for that. But I just feel, as we alluded, you know, he's probably toward the back end of his career. Um, and how much longer will he be? 
and they just haven't had that greater records lately. So that's kind of why I rate him there. And, and Kevin Keats, you know, he kind of came out hot, then he cooled off. And, and then I give everyone a pass last year. Um, 627 winning percentage at NC State. That's not bad. You know, had a 720 winning percentage at UNC Wilmington, obviously step up in the ACC. So I, I, I had him bummed up a little bit. That's true. I, I could definitely get behind the fact that NC State had a – or Kevin Keats had a very good resume. And UNC – or sorry, UNC Wilmington, he did – he of the coaches that kind of were hired by – out of mid-majors recently. So we'll go with like Earl Grant, Kevin Keats, Steve Forbes. That's kind of the, the group of guys. Oh, I'm sorry, Mike Young also in that group. I say – well, he's definitely not – He's definitely not um, below. He's definitely not above Mike Young, but he's right. probably comparable to Steve Forbes and definitely above Earl Grant when it comes to resumes with mid-major schools. But I feel like NC – I mean, he's on the hot seat. Like, if he doesn't do well this year, he might be gone. So I can't really have him very high. It's not like NC State has hugely high expectations. Now, they're definitely one of the better jobs in the ACC, but they definitely – it's not a very, you know, it's not a school where you're expecting to be a national championship contender in order to keep your job there. So if Keats is on the hot seat, that definitely says something. Um, Laranega, I mean, the only reason I had him this high is because of A, his resume, and B, like you said, the benefit of the doubt. But in reality, Laranega at 12, he had a final four at George Mason, early success at Miami, but I really think the better days are behind him. So I'm not really going to move him. I'm not really going to be guilty about moving him that like higher than 12. And then the reason I had Brad Brownell at 10, whereas you had him a little bit lower at 12. I mean, he, he's been there for so long. He's only made the tournament a couple of times, but he seems to consistently have Clemson relatively competitive. I mean, they're, they're not really top 25 team in the country usually, but they're known for their defense. They have one of the best defenses in the country the last couple of years. They probably will have a pretty dominant defense next year, even though their offense has struggled. But I think Brownell has solidified himself with consistent competitiveness where he's kind of a little bit above that bottom tier. Yeah, I mean – We'll, we'll see. I, I agree with Keats on the hot seat. If things go really south, Brownell could find himself on the hot seat. I mean, it's, you know, feasible, I guess I should say, because Clemson kind of ended the year with a dud, um, you know, 201 and 150 at Clemson's, so 500, 573 winning percentage that's not like burning the house down, but like you said, it's Clemson. You're going to have to lower the expectations a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. And then moving up a little bit through the list. So, I mean, well, so, all right, before we get to that. So how about this? Well, let's just quickly talk about Steve Forbes because I had him ranked 11. You had him ranked eighth. So, I mean, you must really be on the Steve Forbes bandwagon because obviously, the success hasn't been much there 
at Wake. I mean, he had one season, and as expected, given the roster that he had, they didn't do too well. But, I mean, like we kind of alluded to, he has a very strong mid-major resume behind him at East Tennessee State, kind of like um, like Mike Young and, you know. Yeah, I mean, for – Mike Kevin Keyes, that was, that was the other coach I was looking for. But okay. <laughs> I he's just – I need to see the excitement, like, translate before I rank him that high. So I ranked him kind of – above the tier of coaches that I have something negative about something that I think, I think that their, their better days are behind them or they're kind of driving their program into the ground, or I just don't really know anything about them. I moved them above them, but coaches that proved anything, that's kind of where I, I kind of sandwich them between. And I put them below those. Yeah. So for me, I, the, some of the coaches we mentioned, they're probably on their way out or they're on the hot seat with the exception of Earl Grant, right? Cause he's, he's new Forbes being at eight. Some of that was defaulted by, I put Hubert Davis at nine and John Shire at 10. And those basically were tied, but I partly put them there just because you, as you mentioned, lack of experience and we don't really know what we're going to get. So, uh, I don't think Forbes is on the hot seat. Yeah, they only went six and 16 last year, but what do you expect? It was his first year, COVID year, couldn't, nothing was normal. Um, so it was going to be difficult. And we saw that we've talked about that in, in football with Mike Norvell and Florida State. To have a new coach last year and the weirdest year in sports history, unable to kind of get your, your, your guys in there and get, get your normal routine that's a tall order, you know, to, to ask of anyone. Um, so I, I like what I, you know, I, I kind of like Steve Forbes. I like his energy. I love him on Twitter. He's always, uh, he's a great follow on Twitter. Uh, but as you said, you know, really successful at East Tennessee state and, it, you know, he's not going to be in the hot seat. So he's going to have a couple years to, to kind of climb the ladder. So I put him, basically in the middle of the pack and, you know, he can go up or down from there. Okay. So it, I think the, the main difference is that you had them, you had Forbes above Davis and Shire and I had him below them. And maybe you have good reasoning for that because Davis and Shire are very much unknowns and they don't have really any head coaching experience where we could say, okay, this is what they are like running a program running the offense, running the defense, like this, we can't really point to that. But I actually, so there's two things. One, I had, like I said, I had Davis and Shire above them because I trust the fact that at a program like UNC and Duke, they're going to leave, they're going to leave it in good hands. And I trust the fact that Davis and Shire are very, are, are at least decent coaches just because of that. They wouldn't just give it to anybody. And those are premier programs with super high expectations and not just anybody could get the job. But the second thing I want to say is I actually had Hubert Davis at six and Shire three spots below him at nine. And the reason I have that is because Hubert Davis has so much more, even as he has so much more experience around the game, even as an assistant coach, 
Hubert Davis has what, like 15 more years around the UNC program. Hmm. So he's also, he's also been an analyst that not that that's um, necessarily coaching, but you get to see kind of the big zoomed out picture. And sometimes, you know, it's one of those can't see the, the, the forest for the trees type thing. Sometimes when you're, you're in that analyst position, you can see what's, Hey, what works with this? Why is this program working? Why is this one not? Sometimes when you're in the program, it might be a little bit more difficult to come up with those. So, yeah, you're right. Been around the, the coach, you know, been assistant coach for longer, I believe, and had that analyst role. So a little bit more experience. But one kind of interesting thing is I, I saw an interview with um, former Virginia Tech coach Seth Greenberg. And he said that, you know, being an assistant coach, fine, but going from the assistant coach to a head coach, it is night and day difference. And he said, and that happened for him at Long Beach State, much less a program like Duke and UNC. So to your point, very unknown. Um, Shire will, I mean, I don't think Hubert Davis knew. I don't think any of us really knew Roy Williams was, this was going to be his last year. Shire at least has that, you know, in, in his favor. Okay, this is his last year. How is Mike doing things? How's Coach K run this? And Coach K, knowing it's his last year, can maybe pull him aside and give him a tip. Oh, here's where you should do this. Here's where you should do this. This is when I do, you know, et, et cetera. Whereas Hubert won't really have that safety net, if you will. So it, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So that, that could very much explain why you had them both below and maybe kind of alluding to the fact that maybe they should have hired somebody with more head coaching experience. I don't know because. Yeah, but I do think, I think to both of those programs, I think it's, it was important to keep it within the family, as they say. And, you know, I'm sure outside yeah, listen i know on the I, I i've spoken to people unc reached out to brad stevens that's true and there was some mutual interest now obviously he didn't leave the celtics and now he's the president or the gm of the celtics or whatever but um so there was that but i think that that kind of that stamp of approval from roy williams that stamp of approval from Coach K, keeping it within the program, giving it to a player who's been there and knows what it means to compete for that team. If the fans are going to probably, the fans will be more forgiving than if you brought in an outsider because they've already rooted for that uh, coach as a player. And like, like I said, they, they it's, it's in their blood now. So it's always it's always more special for a coach to go to his alma mater and succeed. All right. So we're reaching over that 30 minute mark. So there's kind of just two more debates that I wanted to get into no mini debates because they're one away from each other in our rankings. So first off, Tony Bennett, number one, old news. We don't have to rave about him because obviously he's done a phenomenal job, but now that we're kind of running a little bit low timing wise, I don't really feel the need to do so. We all know that he is, 
the best coach in the ACC. But let's start with our five and our four. So I had Chris Mack just above Mike Young. You had Mike Young just above Chris Mack. So I'm going to give you my reasoning first, and then I'll let you give your rebuttal. So Chris Mack, I mean, he's done all right at Louisville, right? I mean, Louisville is a pro, a great job and he's had moderate success there. Hasn't really had overwhelming success, but I think he can in the future because he was absolutely great at Xavier. I mean, he was in the tournament every season, first in the Atlantic 10 and then the big East and the transition into a better conference still was able to get to the tournament and be a constant contender. So the reason I have Chris Mack above Mike Young is because he's just done it for longer. And Mike Young, the only knock I have against him, obviously he's rebuilt Virginia tech very fast and it's not a great job. So, you know, he has that and you can't argue that buzz left them, you know, a sweet 16 caliber team, but on the flip side, main pieces of that team departed so you can't really but the only knock I have against Mike Young is at Wofford he didn't really have the the smoothest beginning and the rebuild was super long and you know it was ultimately successful he won 30 games in his final year before going to Virginia Tech but he still hasn't gotten Virginia Tech to the point that we all expect him to get them to so that's the only reason I have him at five and not four yeah, I mean, I I would totally I, I would totally be okay putting Mac at, at four versus five because uh, you're right he was great at Xavier and he's been great at um, Louisville. I just Mike Young, ACC Coach of the Year, felt like their team competed, especially in in you know uh, a challenging year, a year I think there was a point there was some I, I know we've talked about this they played like two games and. 45 days or something so with all those challenges they were still you know tough and gritty they made the tournament they, they lost in the first round but it was a kind of a nip and tuck game versus florida so i, I just had them slightly higher and like you said it's a, a little bit more difficult of a job it, it, you know obviously virginia tech basketball isn't isn't like the the sexy job and and you know louisville's they've been to final fours before. So, but I think both are good. And, and I think, uh, I think both are going to be good for a while. And then the last thing I wanted to ask was, so you had Jim Bayheim number two and Leonard Hamilton, number three. Now I think in terms of hall of fame resume, that's exactly where I'd have them. Or at least just regarding those two coaches, I'd have Bayheim above Hamilton because Bayheim has one of the greatest resumes in the entire sport. He has a national championship. He has several final fours. He has several ACC titles, but I think right now, 2021 approaching the 2021 to 2022 season, Hamilton is the coach that I'd rather have coaching my program. I think just in the modern game, because obviously the game has changed. And that was one of the questions we even asked our, um, our interviewee, Ryan Humphrey from Notre Dame, the assistant basketball coach, we asked him, you know, how, how has the game changed even during the t- your time around basketball? And he said, well, I mean, the main thing he said was the three point shot has become 
critical. And I feel like, you know, with in that kind of environment with so many three-point shots, Leonard Hamilton's team is much better designed because Leonard Hamilton's team would never shoot threes. Now they shoot a fair amount of threes and the two, three zone is not really designed for modern offenses. Now, obviously come tournament time, it's a different story, but still I say right now, Hamilton over Bayheim, historically Bayheim over Hamilton. Yeah. I, I'll be totally honest. I, I agree with virtually every word you said. I would, if, if I'm a fan and I have those two to pick, I pick Hamilton. Uh, I think he's evolving more. I think he's going into the kind of, you know, where he sometimes positionless lineup and everyone keeps their minutes down. Everyone stays fresh, rotating, playing lots of guys. And I, I kind of see that as, as a, a more dynamic offense, a, a, a more dynamic team. He's able to get guys to check their egos at the door. Hey, you're not going to come in and play 38 minutes a game. You know, you're not going to come in and hoist up, you know, 25 shots a game. And Bayheim kind of the Syracuse, they're always on that bubble. Are they going to get in? They get in, they win a few games or whatever. The ceiling's definitely higher for Hamilton. The reason I and this is really the reason I did it was I, I took historical. Uh, you know, in, in the historical f- factor into account. Bayheim's won it all. He's made Final Fours. And as we've talked about before, Hamilton just hadn't gotten over that hump. And if he does, if he gets over that hump, and especially if he cut the nets down, then, yeah, he – I'd even consider at that point maybe even bumping him over Tony Bennett, although Tony Bennett would have, you know, the age factor on him by a significant amount. But – as I, as I said, these a lot of these were splitting hairs. It was really tough to kind of rank everyone like that. No, 100%. It was basically Tony Bennett, and then that was a top tier. Then there was Leonard Hamilton and Bayheim, whatever order you want to put them, the second tier. And then there was just so much of a mix. After that, there was established coaches. There was young, exciting coaches. There was inexperienced coaches. There was a Duke UNC kind of coaches where they're at a great program and have great words but to say about them, but we don't even know anything about them running a program. So it's just so, I mean, that, that's why we did this exercise. If it was easy, then we wouldn't have a 40 minute podcast to talk about it. So. How about this though? Let's say Bayheim retires. Who, who in this list is going to have the most tenure at their program? Do you know? I would say probably Leonard Hamilton. Oh, yeah. Leonard Hamilton. Mike Bray. Oh, my, oh, duh. Yeah, we, we haven't even talked about Mike Bray. The only reason I skipped him is because we both had him at seven. But yeah. yeah. But, Bray, you know, Bray, Bray's been around since 2000. We've talked about him possibly on the hot seat if, if they can't kind of turn things around. And then at that point, it would be Leonard Hamilton. Mm-hmm. So good stuff. Right. One, one last question. You, got, you can answer yep. me very quickly. Tony Bennett gets on the Hall of Fame ballot, I think, in like 2023 or so. First ballot, like right away, Tony Bennett to the Hall of Fame, or do you want to wait a little bit? Obviously, he's going to get there, but do you give him the respect of as soon as he's eligible, giving getting him in the Hall of Fame? Nah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Not not unless he. What did you say? 2025. Yeah, like 2023, 2024, something like that. Okay. 
wins another if you, cut, if you cut the nets down again in between now and then then maybe that's exactly what i'd say like yeah. he's 100 a hall of fame coach already and if you're retired to that he'd eventually get it but being a first ballot hall of famer is something different right and look you know we, we had a bunch of uh i know roy williams was one of them had was lobbying to get leonard hamilton in the hall of fame because he's not in there yet I think everybody lobbies to get Leonard Hamilton in the Hall of Fame <laughs> as far as ACC coaches are concerned. That's true. Just hoping that Coach K's kind of farewell speech is as great as uh, Roy Williams's was in terms of just complimenting everybody. Yeah. You know, that that's something we'll talk about a year from now. But, um, yeah, it's been good, Jason. Thank you to the listeners for – uh, you know, give of course, always interacting with us on Twitter and uh, listening to this episode. Um, but until then, thanks for listening once again, and we'll see you next time on the Pipeline ACC podcast. <laughs>